Hello everyone, Michael here. Just a word before the podcast begins. This recording was made at a distance. I'm in England, Rupert is in southern France, and in this case, of course, Anthony Murphy is in Ireland. This means that sometimes we don't have as much control over audio quality as we'd like, and in this case there are some audio issues. We're aware that particularly in the earlier part of the recording, there is some crackling can be heard on Anthony's track, for which we apologise. We do hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the discussion. That's it. On with the show. Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is a Standing With Stones megalithic podcast special. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. So welcome to the first ever Standing With Stones podcast extra. And we're a bit overexcited because, well, we know we're going to enjoy the conversation over the next hour or so. Hope you do too. We've been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks. Yeah, if you have the slightest interest in things megalithic and prehistoric, and even if you don't, no, if you didn't have an interest, you wouldn't be listening to this. But anyway, it will have been hard to avoid what seems to have been a perfect storm of archaeological discoveries hitting the headlines in recent months. We've had a constant stream of news from the Ness of Brodger as the dig is opened up for the new season. A new henge has been revealed by excavations in East Anglia. A new monument has been discovered close by Brinkethley, the burial chamber on Anglesey. And we're told that some of the people of Stonehenge came from Wales, amongst other things. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. But... But preeminent amongst all of this has been the discovery of a hitherto unknown henge-like monument very close to Newgrange. And the other, do you know what? Um, I'm going to be asking our guest this evening for lessons in pronunciation for everything this evening. <laughs> but the Brunboim monuments of Nowth and Douth and others, and one that adds another layer of complexity to the already archaeologically abundant Boyne Valley in County Meath, Ireland. Man with Drone Discovers Ancient Henge is a story interesting enough, it seems, to bring it to the attention of the international press. And so now many people around the world will be aware, not only of the drought conditions in these parts and how that has helped reveal this and other previously unknown ancient monuments, but also they'll be aware of the man that we are pleased to introduce as our guest today, an exemplar of the truism that good luck comes to the dedicated hard workers of the world. Host of the Mythological Island website, the man with the drone himself, Anthony Murphy. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Rupert. Indeed, welcome, Anthony. So, look, before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of this conversation, I hope you, you'd bear with me a moment. In the interest of giving our listeners a, a complete and fully rounded view of, of who you are, because I think this is important, I'm going to read from your biography on Mythical Island. Okay? So Anthony Murphy is a journalist, photographer, author, and astronomer who lives in Drogheda in the gateway to Ireland's historic Boyne Valley. He spent almost 20 years researching, photographing, and writing about the ancient megalithic monuments of the Boyne Valley and their associated mythology, cosmology, and alignments. He is the author of five books, including the acclaimed Island of the Setting Sun, 
In Search of Ireland's Ancient Astronomers with Richard, with Richard Moore, New Grange, Monument to Immortality, and Mythical Island, New Light on the Ancient Past. His works of fiction are a novella called Land of the Ever-Living Ones and a short novel called The Cry of the Sebek. Anthony has worked in the newspaper industry for his entire career, beginning as a reporter and later design editor with the Drogheda Independent, where he spent 10 years. He later became editor of the Drogheda Leader newspaper and went on to become editor of the, of the Dundalk Democrat. He is now sub-editor and graphic designer with the Irish Farmer's Journal. He lives in Drogheda with his wife, Anne, and their five children. An accomplished photographer, Anthony's work is well known, not just through his books, but also the Mythical Island website and through his presence on social media. He is a licensed radio amateur with the call sign EI2KC, and it is proficient at sending and receiving Morse code, a skill that is dying out as newer modes of communication have replaced the older ones. Anthony has appeared many times on television as an expert on Newgrange and the monuments and indeed astronomy, and is featured in newspaper, magazine and news up and news media articles around the world. He regularly gives talks about his research and also leads private tours of the monuments. He is a member of the Independent Tour Guides Association. Well, I feel just a little bit tired just reading that. But on top of all that, and here's a fundamental opening question for you, Anthony. Why the euphonium? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Well, the the answer is very simple, Michael. The euphonium is simply the sweetest yeah. sounding of all the brass instruments. Ah. It is a, it has a beautiful, deep, Brilliant. sonorous, round tone, and it it is just yeah. uh, siren like in its beauty. It would uh, put you to sleep if that's what you wanted. It would keep you awake if that's what you wanted. It could send you into trance-like states if you wanted. Brilliant. After the bit I missed out, of course, that Anthony Anthony is also happens to be the lead euphonium player of the Drogheda Brass Band. I've got that right, haven't I? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. See, see, I've else. got I've got another question that, off the top though. Before we get into anything else, is Anthony, what do you do in your spare time? <laughs> I I sleep. And a, a very, a very good friend of mine says that sleep is just practicing for being dead. <laughs> so uh, spare time is for sleeping, because clearly I don't have any spare time, you know. It, it well, yeah. exactly, and that was the very reason for the question. <laughs> yeah. oh, dear, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, we have got loads of questions about your work on the Boy Valley Complex. And I'm sure that is going to make up the bulk of what we talk about on the show because all of it is just absolutely fascinating. But, uh, I mean, the perspective you have on these monuments through, what is it, 20 years of work? Uh, but first, we, we have to get this one out of the way, Anthony. What is it like to discover a henge? What happened on that day when you put the drone up and suddenly realised that you were staring at something that there must have been an oh my god moment wasn't yeah, it what, what, what actually happened there it, well it's it's it, it's it's surreal and unreal at the same time it's now um, over a month since the discovery my feet have hardly touched the ground i still 
expect somebody to slap me in the face and wake me out of a dream and to tell me that it's all <laughs> because it has had a dreamlike quality about it. And I suppose to broaden the question, it's not just about what it's like to discover a henge. It's what it's like to discover a, a completely mm. uh, a hidden and hitherto unknown henge 750 metres from Newgrange in yeah, the middle absolutely. of a UNESCO World Heritage Site that has been under intense scrutiny by archaeologists for several yes. decades now. <laughs> so how many how many uh, how yeah, many superlatives and expletives yeah. can I use? Doesn't it? You know, I, I mean, it's it's been an absolutely <laughs> astonishing, beautiful, uh, heartwarming, revelatory, um, inspiring discovery, and it seems to have inspired and. Um, really gripped the public interest in an, in a way that archaeology doesn't normally yeah. grip the public, mm. you know. So it's been really it's been really yeah. nice to be at the centre of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm so so glad that you you're clearly able to enjoy it as yeah. well. I can't obviously lose sight of the the enormity of it all in terms of the importance of what is there, and in addition to that the wealth yeah. of discoveries mm. that it prompted as a result of the publicity that so many people who fly drones in Ireland and in other countries, um, as a result of the publicity, mm. flew their drones mm. and found lots of other stuff. So what was the process for you? I mean, wh wh why were you out that day particularly? Oh, you, you were with um, um, the artist, isn't No, it? I'll tell you, no, I, I, I was with, um, I had just begun to launch the drone when, by complete coincidence, a very good friend of mine, Ken Williams, ah, who's yeah, another yeah. photographer and he runs the Shadows and Stone website, um, Ken happened to, uh, upon the scene and said he had his drone and he decided he would fly alongside. So there's a lot of coincidences behind the discovery as well. But one of the things <laughs> that wasn't coincidental was the fact that I was there on a mission. So two things. First of all, I was aware of the some headlines in the British media that had been shared on social media about discoveries that had been made as a result of the drought there. So, now look, yeah. I, I, I didn't set out with the intention of discovering a henge. Obviously, I the, the main reason for flying the drone was because it, it was pointed out to me um, by the archaeologist Steve Davis of UCD, University College Dublin, that there may be features in the existing archaeology that would reveal themselves. In particular, he recommended a flight over Site P. Now, Site P is an embanked henge or an embanked enclosure alongside the river uh, south of Newgrange that has long been known. And indeed, he was right, because on the evening in question, uh, when I flew over Site P, I saw features in the scorched grass that I hadn't seen before. Wow. Uh, I was going to scour the surrounding landscape and just have a look, so to speak, to see if there was anything else. Um, and on the second of the two flights I made, you, you know, with a drone, uh, as you, you know yourself, I think um, you guys fly drones, you mm, know, yeah. when the battery's running low, you have to bring it back and land it and change the battery. On the yeah. second flight, yeah. on my way down to Site P, I saw something in the field to the west of it that uh, initially had me rubbing my eyes and questioning my senses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask you sort of more near the end of the program, but I think it's appropriate to actually uh, ask now. Do, do you have a, a, a feeling for um, uh, what it uh, what it is that you've discovered? Because there's some aspects of it that look quite 
unusual looking at the uh, photography that you've got. Mm. Apparently, well, look, uh, first of all, I should say, for the benefit of your listeners, I'm not an archaeologist. First and foremost, I'm a writer. And so I'm not necessarily qualified to, you know, to pinpoint what it is. But I can tell you what we've been told by several archaeologists, and that is that it would be described as a henge or a pit circle or a ceremonial circle. Uh, It's likely to date to the late Neolithic. It doesn't appear to have had had any embankment, any embanked Mm. features. It also doesn't appear to have used any stone. Uh, It was highly likely, we're told, to have been a timber henge. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, where it departs from the known Irish henges is in this very, very exciting segmented double ditch features which is broken Mm. at very regular intervals and that apparently is a completely and entirely unique feature of any irish henge it it has semblances of a causeway enclosure but the causeway enclosures are not broken at regular intervals like that and it's not perfectly circular, uh, although a lot of the media have described it as a circle. It's not. It's not perfectly circular. It's actually flattened towards the west northwest, where the, oh, right. the porch-like yeah. or entrance-like feature is. You know, mm-hmm. um, and then it's very like site P in that it's immediately adjacent to site P. Site P has an annex or an extra crescent-shaped addition on its eastern side, and this hinge appears to be very similar to site P in its design Uh, but where it differs in one immediate facet is the lack of an embankment yeah so i mean i suppose we'll have to wait for one day when they get round to doing a few excavations for the next answers to that really i suppose yeah it's it's going to be such an exciting thing yeah a lot of people are asking um with 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 increasing urgency actually on social media People are asking me, mm. when is the dig? When is the dig? When when are they digging it? Have the, have the government bought the field? Is that yeah. the other? And what people don't realise is, <laughs> you know, well, well, there's a number of things about yeah. that. But first and foremost, it's on a private farm. It's on Newgrange Farm. Newgrange Farm is is, is a farm where they yeah. have sheep and cattle and tillage. Uh, they also have a visitor attraction. They have a, a model farm there that you can go, the kids can yeah. go and, yeah. and hold the chicks and see the pigs feeding and all the rest. And it's very interactive. They take people on trips around the land and tell them fairy tales. It's a lovely operation down there. Mm. But first and foremost, it's a working farm. So archaeologists aren't in the habit of just walking onto people's private property and saying, I'm going to do a dig, you know? (laughs) Uh, The the second thing is somebody has to to plan that dig, somebody has to fund that dig, and somebody has to provide a a reason for doing it. There's no, I, I don't think there's an immediate urgency. There would be urgency if this Henge lay in the path of a motorway that was being constructed, or a retail park, or a housing yeah, estate. Yes. You know, and and the other thing yeah. is that, like from the farmer's point of view, uh, um, he, he he harvested the crop a week ago today, uh, Monday last week. The crop of yeah, wheat was yeah. harvested. He'll be thinking now towards ploughing uh, in a month's time or so, and sowing next year's crop. That's what he's thinking about at the moment. Uh, People have to take cognizance of the fact that the reality is that uh, the majority of archaeology in Ireland is located on farmland, you know. Uh, And then the third point, and this is very important, is that uh, there are probably all told 100 monuments, uh, known monuments and suspected features. And that's being added to all the time in the UNESCO World Heritage Site. The vast majority of those have never been excavated. So 
you know, looking as an outsider, because mm-hmm. I'm not an archaeologist, as I said, I know plenty of them. Um, one would one would suspect that they'd have to make a case for making a, a, a you know a, 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 a particular um, lunge at this in terms of, of of digging at it. There are lots and lots of passage tombs. There are curses mm-hmm. monuments. There are you know there are Bronze Age sites. There's a whole clatter of stuff there that has never been touched with a trowel. So. Why, mm-hmm. why, why the new henge, and why not, for instance, one of the other henges in the area, um, you know, in the immediate vicinity, you know? Imagine that's a, a long conversation that uh, is, <laughs> is going to be had. But, uh, I mean, it's, so in the meantime, uh, there's not much more we can say, I guess. Um, I, I, I hope um, that uh, it's uh, – I, I, I noticed I ha- – I have not read either of your main books, uh, Anthony. I must c- confess I went on to Amazon to have a look, see if I could grab it, something. But uh, it seems um, they're all sold out now. Is that a result of um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you're you becoming uh, semi-famous, as it were? <laughs> Um, yeah, perhaps that's an element. Well, I- Island of the Setting Sun was first published in 2006 and republished in 2008. It is now out of print. Um, now, I-, I would like to see it back in print, but it's really, I suppose, my thesis around the idea of the underlying astronomy and cosmology involved in the construction and layout of some of these monuments, you know? Yeah, is what uh, we would uh, like to, to get get on to. Indeed. So, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about this, it is very much a, a case of somebody being uh, in the right place at the right time. Uh, there's a lot more to making a discovery like this. And, and in the, the important thing is, of course, the fact that uh, you live in the Boyne Valley. You've lived... All your life in the Boyne Valley, that's is that correct. right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's right. So you were born in Drogheda. Yeah. Born and raised. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So wh- wh- so how did the, the monuments themselves first present themselves to, to you? What to, what what awoke your interest in them, in the monuments? Very, very good question, yeah. Michael. Um, when I was uh, a school uh, a pupil of primary school in Drogheda, yeah. um, the, ex- the excavations, particularly at Nelth, were, uh, o- O'Kelly's uh, excavations. No, well, no, the O'Kelly excavations at Newgrange, I think, um, were pretty much over by the time I oh, was right. in primary school because they went. They were mainly sixties and seventies, and I think uh, they had wound up before the seventies were out. And I was oh, you born, are but a youth then. Yeah, well, I was born in <laughs> seventy four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was going. I started oh, school in that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm only a kid. I know. Yeah, but um, you see, when when we were in school, it was very difficult to to not to uh, to hear about the marvelous discoveries that were being made at Mouth because the excavations there, which began, I think, in the second part of the '60s, um, yeah. didn't wind up until four decades later in the early 2000s. Oh, so yes, there were yes. there was just all of the time Mouth was in the media, and of course the association with Newgrange. And it turned out that Nouth was much more complex than Newgrange. It had more art, it had yeah. more stones, it had more satellite sites, it had yeah. two passageways. And every summer there were new revelations being made. So it was very difficult not mm. to be captivated by that. And then I remember very specifically in 1986, my father brought home George Ogan, who was the le- leading archaeologist at Nouth, his, his book, about ah. the, the site containing lots of pictures and ah. drawings and information 
And when he brought that home, I basically commandeered it, you know, because I was com- completely fascinated <laughs> with its contents, you know. Oh, fantastic. What a brilliant bit of serendipity. And in conjunction yes. with that, the yeah, other yeah. thing that brought me really into the whole scope of study uh, in 1999, that was to come much later when I met Richard Moore, was my interest in astronomy, mm. which was, again, something that yes. um, evolved in my young childhood. I just developed a fascination with the night sky. I used to watch Patrick Moore on the sky of night at the sky, at the sky at night. I used to spend, <laughs> I mean, yeah. hours and hours and hours as a practical astronomer, somebody who went out into the garden and spent hundreds of hours under the stars when all of the other sensible astronomers were what you call armchair astronomers re- reading books and able to rhyme off all the information about how far away the stars and planets were and how big the galaxies were but who wouldn't uh, bear the winter cold and go out and actually look at the stars i was the opposite i well i had a, a big yearning for the knowledge but i, I just felt just in awe under the, and I still do. Just uh, mm. a few nights ago, uh, myself and my wife Anne went out to watch the Perseid meteors in the garden and spent a couple of hours out. And we find it just to be a heartening and almost a romantic activity, you know. <laughs> I have to say, it, it is something that we 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 share wholeheartedly because I, I I was always uh, passionate about astronomy from when I was a very small boy, and have had all manner of telescopes uh, along the way. Uh, and and I can tell you that the other night, because the peak of the Perseids was uh, was last Saturday and Sunday, I was out Saturday night looking up at the sky, and it was just absolutely crystal clear. One of the yeah. clearest nights I've had in ages. And it's down in the I south was, of France, by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, okay. well, yeah. nice. I was I was tired. And I thought, well, do you know what? Because we've had nothing but glorious weather for weeks. So I thought, well, I'll go to bed and I'm going to stay up all night tomorrow night and take photographs. And that was it. Saturday night was the last clear night. We have had nothing but rain (laughs) rain and clouds since then. So so it's gone for me this year. (laughs) There's something very romantic about watching shooting stars while quaffing French Chardonnay as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, organize that, would you, Rupert? <laughs> Sorry, organize that, would you, Rupert? Yeah. <laughs> would you know what? We really should. We really should. Yeah. It would be a good thing yeah, to do. No. Yeah, I'm serious. Yeah. Wine, yeah. wine tasting so and stargazing. That would be a tremendous idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> perfect a perfect marriage and also i mean living uh you know near the complexity of bruna bonia and uh and being intoxicated by astronomy that's the perfect combination to you know bring you around to uh, putting the two together mm. um I, would you anthony for our listeners, because I know you've got a, a a complete, you know, and layered, um, uh, not analysis, what would it take, or uh, story on uh, astronomy uh, and Newgrange, beginning obviously with the uh, winter solstice sun, but also um, Venus, I believe, comes into yeah. the picture, and the moon. Could you? Could you? Sort of layer that for us um, and give us an idea of the uh, complexity that is beyond 
um, what is normally accepted is this, you know, the simple alignment of the, with the yeah, winter solstice. Yeah, certainly. And I think actually that's one of the main reasons that Mythical Ireland came into existence in the yeah. first place was when Richard Moore came along to me in January of 1999 and said that he he knew a lot about the archaeology and the mythology of the Boyne Valley, but he didn't know any astronomy. And could I help to teach him some astronomy? And I said, yeah, I'd be more than happy to. And um, ah, yeah, he yeah. believed um, just... Uh, without having the expert knowledge, he believed that the complexity of the astronomy was much greater. I suppose you could call it a hunch or an intuitive thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a fixation in the official story about the sun and worship of the sun. Now, the difficulty with that uh, interpretation is that if you are a prehistoric agricultural society, um, it's very difficult for you to to base your calendar on what essentially are just two hooks in the year, the, the, the sun's standing still points. Now, we know they were very important. Obviously, we know they're important because several monuments are aligned towards these events, uh, and the most famous of which is Newgrange for the winter solstice sunrise. But if, 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 you, if you want uh, to construct any sort of a working calendar, and you're going to just say, well, the only mm. two hooks of the year that we have are winter solstice and summer solstice. Well, you, one of the immediate difficulties is sometimes at winter solstice, it can be cloudy for seven or eight days in a row and you don't get to see the sunrise. So you've lost your yeah. precise determination mm-hmm. thereof. In any case, it's probably very difficult to pinpoint the exact day. When you add in the moon, however, your system immediately becomes much more interesting. Now, uh-huh. the modern... Uh, academic mindset tends to lean towards the idea that because the movements of the moon are complex, apparently, to the modern mind, then they would necessarily have been complex to the prehistoric and, let's say, primitive mind. And that is not the case at all. The big difference between the uh, Neolithic uh, farmer astronomers of the Boyne Valley and the modern-day academics is that the modern-day academics, like myself, spend a lot of time uh, in, in indoors in artificially lit buildings with roofs over their heads, completely detaching themselves yes. <laughs> from their view of the cosmos. Yes. And so they don't have that practical working knowledge Absolutely, of yeah. how the sky works and how the heavenly bodies move around the sky. Uh, so when you factor in the moon and the likes of Venus and then some stellar astronomy, uh, you begin to see that the calendar uh, becomes much more uh, complex and much more workable to be honest with you um, so you then mm. like some people would say well the equinoxes for instance are a very arbitrary division of the year and why would the equinoxes have been important well one of the reasons the equinoxes would have been important is that you're mainly watching what the full moon is doing at the equinox because if the full moon is rising at the equinox exactly where the sun uh, or opposite where the sun has risen that morning it's in danger of being eclipsed. And when you get into eclipses, you start to see that eclipses happen in entirely predictable patterns. Now I'm talking about um, uh, lunar eclipses, Mm. because obviously for solar eclipses, you have to be located on a particular strip of the earth in order to see the solar eclipses. But, you know, the complexity is in our mind, I think, primarily. Now, this journey of mine did require me to learn a new discipline, which was... Neolithic astronomy, because none of the modern astronomy textbooks will teach you this stuff. They might mention the 19-year metonic cycle. They might mention Mm -hmm. the 18.6-year cycle, which takes the 
the moon in and out of its standstills. They might mention the Saros and the eclipse intervals. However, they won't teach you how to see them and they won't teach you how to how to learn those and, and how yeah. prehistoric people yeah. might have learned those. And know? probably only a man that has spent so much time lying on his back looking up at the, the stars, you know, f- from such an early age is able to <laughs> grasp that so quickly as well. Well, it certainly or makes so it easier, yeah. That you're able to yeah. make an interpretation. Yeah, yeah. because in my, in my experience, when I give talks that are focused on the astronomy, if I give talks to, mm. to uh, an astronomy group, they will they will be able to grasp the material much quicker and easier than people who have no working knowledge of astronomy. So it really depends on where your starting base is. And sometimes your starting base with people is, do you know that the moon goes through phases? And some people don't necessarily know that the moon progresses from first crescent towards first quarter into waxing gibbous towards full moon and then wanes out again and disappears again every month. Some people don't even know the basics, you know. So, yeah, your your starting point is very low with certain audiences. And sure, it's no wonder then that we've come to this point where we've just accepted that prehistoric societies or well the prehistoric society who built the great monuments of Brunebonia were were solar astronomers only because we don't want to move beyond that because it takes us out of that comfort zone and requires us to learn an entire new discipline that in my case has taken years to learn yeah, yeah. to what degree has uh, things that have popped up in the mythology uh, informed how to yeah, look yeah. at the uh, astronomical the alignments yeah. of uh, Newgrange and the other monuments. That's a brilliant question, uh, Michael. Because, uh, and it's look, your, your some of your listeners will, will know about mythical Ireland. Some of them won't. There is a mythical and cosmological undercurrent to what I do, and an almost mystical quality. Okay, yeah, yeah. fair enough. The reason it's important is. Because before the excavation of Newgrange, which began in 1962, the local people in the Boyne Valley were able to tell the archaeologist information that was only to be revealed upon the excavation and restoration of Newgrange. (laughs) So so to give you some select select examples, now that's folklore, I suppose, and it's also there in the mythology. To give you select examples, the locals knew that the sun shone in there once a year on the solstice. The locals knew they were able to say that the (laughs) monument was once covered in white quartz. And of course, within five centuries of Newgrange being built, what happened was there was a catastrophic cairn slip in which all of the cairn materials slipped out over the cairn. And the first thing to fall was the white quartz and it got buried right at the bottom. And yet Ah, in 1960, uh, the local information was that it was once covered in white quartz. Another story captured by the American... um, comparative uh, mythological professor uh, Joseph Campbell was that the light of the morning star could be seen to shine into Newgrange uh, at dawn once every eight years. That astronomically is is factual. In the mythology, there's a fascinating story uh, that I've just written about for a new anthology about the Dagda. The Dagda would be the chief of the Tua de Dan and the gods who are associated yeah. with the monuments. Dagda said to have built Newgrange and to have been its first owner. Uh, in, acad- in the academic sphere, they believe that he was a solar deity. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't have any reason to question that. Yeah, so there's a story in the Dunchenicus. Now, the Dunchenicus is a collection of 
uh, mythology about place names and particularly where the eminent or important sacred places got their names from. And in, in relation to Newgrange, there's a fascinating story about the Dogda. Now, the, the Dogda was the chief of the gods said to have built the monuments, uh, very much a solar deity. Uh, and the story relates how he entered into the house of Elkmar. Now, Elkmar was one of the two headed Danon chiefs, uh, the chief, one of the chief deities and original owner of Newgrange. He entered into the house of Elkmar uh, in order to lie with Elkmar's wife, Boeing. Uh-huh. And of course, she's the, the goddess after whom the whole river and the valley is consecrated, Baruna uh-huh. Boinia and the, the, the Boyne River. Uh, and that this happens uh, when he has made the sun stand still in the heaven with uh, ah. his uh, magic. So this appears to me to be a symbolic or poetic yeah. description in mythology of the, uh, I suppose, the penetration of the chamber of Newgrange by the beam of light at the solstice, Fantastic. which is when yeah. the sun is standing still, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one cannot, uh, I think examine the uh, the monuments of the Boyne Valley without taking taking cognizance of the the myths uh, about these places you know yeah yeah uh, and well I think that the Sorry, myths Robert. are so critical th- throughout aren't they um, that uh, that so much you know before the written word that so, so much passing on of uh, of wisdom you know in whichever um, verbal you know even metaphorical, form you know i think sometimes we lose sight of that that um that histories could have been given as metaphors um you know there's so much that we, we you know we've been particularly fascinated by uh you know even at Callanish, for example that there's the myth that that was built by black men from over the sea mm. and one of the things that uh, that that i was not aware of at all until uh reading uh, you know some of the connections with your stuff that that were the Milesians and their connection with uh, with Hispania. Well, how how far back does that go? Well, the the myth is believed to be, um, depending on which source you refer to, either an Iron Age or a Bronze Age myth. But I mean. For a long time, mm. the Milesians have been described in mythology as the ancestors of the Gaels or the ancestors of the Irish. Um, and yeah. the Lower Gawala, mm. the Book of Invasions, which chronicles a whole series of incursions and arrivals into Ireland in prehistory, uh, appears to many to be mere fable and, you know, just to be some sort of con- concocted story. However, what I'm fascinated by is that in the past five years only, um, genetic studies have thrown uh, a belief that we've had about our origins completely on its head. And previous to, to 2013, we, we believed that Irish people were dis- descended from the first people who arrived after the Ice Age, that we had, in effect, a Mesolithic gene. Yeah, But yeah. the genetic studies have showed, as you're probably yes. very familiar with, that Genetic studies have showed that, in fact, no, we're descended from the Beaker people, the people who arrived much later and who post-date the construction of the great monuments. Uh, yeah, which, this is the question uh, I was going to ask you. Oh, yes, I'm glad we, no, 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 absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it, this is, is fascinating stuff. And, it, and you see, this is a wonderful example of myth matching reality or uh, reality-confirming um, myth. Yeah, well, um, well, as I said, the myth 
all, the myth about the Malaysians was that they were the ancestors yeah. of the Irish, and that is something that the uh, archaeologists and the geneticists didn't believe until, as I say, sometime in the past five years. So, um, um, uh, Professor. Mallory, Jim Mallory, sorry, Professor Jim Mallory of Queen's University wrote a really fascinating and fabulous book uh, published in 2013 called The Origins of the Irish, in which he tries to trace our, you know, our genetic and cultural origins, the origins of our language and where we've come from looking at the archaeology. Now, his original uh, he, he's quoted in a, a, a lecture that he gave, which is available actually on YouTube. He, he, he said himself of his first edition that he had to completely revise the, the, the genetics and add a new chapter into the re, re, republished uh, uh, book because uh-huh. our, our understanding of uh, the genetic origins had come so far in, in the space of a few years that what we had previously believed was no longer true, you know? Yeah. I mean, Rupert and I have uh, come to be quite fascinated by this boundary <laughs> between the Neolithic and the uh, and the Bronze Age uh, and uh, what happened to uh, the mm. uh, late Neolithic yeah. uh, culture um, when so-called bigger people uh, came over. It'd be interesting yeah, to, to see if there's any further light on that. Absolutely. But the people yeah. that we associate were Associating with uh, Bonya uh, the Tour de Danon, yes. In the mythology, yes, yeah. In the mythology, yeah. Not, not the, not the Firbolg, Is that right? Uh, no, the the Tour de Danon were the ones who, who built the monuments. Dagda, the chief of the yeah. gods, was the one who dispersed them uh, amongst the the other gods. You know, so so they're very much yeah. Yeah. connected with the construction of them. You know, because in in my mind, I. Um, I know so little. I mean, don't, I, it sounds like you know, I know a lot, but I don't. I, but I, I associate <laughs> the, the the Malaysians with, with the, the Hill of Tara. Yeah, uh, are the Tour de Danan connected with the with the Hill of Tara before that, or that's a, that's was a, that a disputed site? No, you? that's a very good question because the difficulty there is that no, you're quite right. The association with Tara is from uh, Queen Chia T E A. Uh, some people pronounce that yeah. Tia, but but it's Cha Cha were the the wall or the rampart okay. of Cha, her burial place, yeah. and she yeah. was the wife of Eremon. By the way, not his first wife. Um, <clears throat> yes, <laughs> just checking. Apparently, his first his first wife was a lady <laughs> called Ova, and she followed him over to sea and was heartbroken to find to find that he had fallen in love with an Egyptian princess, um, and 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 apparently end, ended her own ah. life here here in Ireland after arriving and finding out about this. Uh, all this carry on with her husband, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, one of the difficulties with the Hill of Tara is that the only extant or surviving uh, monument that predates the Bronze Age is a very yeah. small passage tomb called the Mound of the Hostages. And, oh, I see. And yes, we know yes. precious little about the Neolithic phase of Tara. And l- yeah. look, most of the mythology about Tara is in relation to the kings. And that, of course, is Iron Age yes. and medieval mythology. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. you know, historically, we don't know yeah. how much value that has, you know. 
Yes, when we made Standing with Stones, uh, then which we in which we did concentrate on the Neolithic, we didn't commit too much of a sin by bypassing the Hill of Tara. Yeah. Then, did we? <laughs> no, we didn't. I, I, I would only have got lost in a whole load of other dreadful <laughs> pronunciations, anyway. Yes, can we hereby apologise to the people of uh, Ireland and and Wales for some dreadful pronunciations uh, on our uh, journeys Shocking. ten years ago? Yes. I I heard the um, word uh, Egypt and um, the Egyptian. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I know that is a, a very uh, yeah. tenuous uh, connection, the, the Far East connection. Do you hold? Do you- the thing is, in fairness, in fairness, where you know we say tenuous and can't argue with uh, with that, except that isn't it fascinating when you have a situation where archaeologists and historians say. No, 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 no. That's just a myth. You know, as Anthony has just said, and then suddenly it's, oh, okay, you were right all along. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I I do think that that to have a myth that goes back so far in history, you know, why on earth would would somewhere like Callanish have a myth associated with it uh, about black men building it? Why, why would they have made that up? You know, you could argue that, or maybe they came wearing black, maybe, mm. but it's still something. I don't think you can throw the myth away just because it seems mm. improbable. Well, uh, that um, that brings to mind the, the story in, isn't it, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who said that the stones of Stonehenge were brought from Ireland, from a place called Mount Kilaros, and that they had been brought to Ireland from Africa by giants. Now, what I think it means, and this is entirely my own personal intuitive hunch, as it were, is that that refers to the pathway that is still remembered that human beings took on our first step out of, you know, our genetic origins, which lie originally on the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. That is just purely something that I've just speculated on uh, that may give us a meaning it's not that the actual stones were brought there it's that the whole ideology and the technology behind them was had migrated first of all out of africa uh, and then into europe and eventually to the british isles you know that is an interesting yeah. take and that's all it is yeah, yeah it's not mm, a, yeah. it's just something i've speculated on in my own work so um yeah wh- where are we i mean there's so much we could um uh, get into. I mean, we could uh, create a whole story about the origins of the Irish people for you out there. Are there, are there any, anything more uh, in terms of the uh, mythology, anything more about the uh, astronomy, uh, not just of Newgrange, but of the of Nauth, Douth, uh, and any of the surrounding yeah, uh, uh, monuments that um, that uh, leap out? I'm, I'm thinking also, isn't there a correlation with Cygnus? Um, uh, between Newgrange and the constellation Cygnus, um, that's there, there is, in my view, well. yeah, because there's very, uh, there are very prominent swan myths associated with Newgrange, and uh, two in particular that are mm. associated with the conception and birth of um, young gods at Newgrange. In the first case, Angus Og, who is the son that is conceived by the illicit union of Dagda and Bowen. Uh, you know, in this myth that I was talking about, when 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 Dagda enters the house of Elkmar mm. to lie with Bowen at a time when the sun is standing still, 
Um, and Angus has a dream in which he he he, he sees uh, a vision of a young maiden, a young woman, and he falls madly in love with her, even though she's just essentially a phantom. And the long and short of the story is that he he, he tries to starve himself mm. out of love sickness, and eventually the two Adidanan search the whole land for this lady, and they find her, but that she's a uh, in the form of a swan. She changes into swan shape one year, and she returns to her human shape the following year. Is there any correlation, uh, 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 do you think, with Zeus and Leda? Leda and the swan, Zeus took on uh, the uh, the form of a swan to uh, seduce Leda. Uh, yeah, I think there's probably parallels there because what happens is eventually um, the Tuatadana chief, Bob Jarog, uh, takes Angus to the Lake of the Dragon's Mouth in Tipperary where he has found the maiden, but he says to her, now she has taken the form of a swan and Angus goes to the edge of the lake, and despite the fact that uh, his lover is surrounded by uh, thrice 50 other swans, he's immediately able to take uh, to pick her out of the crowd, as it were, and he beckons her over to him, and she says, who calls me? She tells him her name is Care, C-A-E-R. And she said, in order for you to have my love, you must take my shape. And that's what happens. Angus transforms into a swan. They take off from the Lake of the Dragon's Mouth, and they fly to Brunabonia, where they circle the place three times. They put the inhabitants of the valley to sleep with their enchanted singing, and then they fly into Newgrange. And, of course, Newgrange has a cruciform shape which reflects the cruciform shape of the Swan constellation of the Northern Hemisphere, which, coincidentally, is one of those few constellations that is almost completely embedded in the, in the Milky Way. And, of course, the Milky mm-hmm. Way, one of the many Irish names for the Milky Way is Balak na Bófina, the way of the white cow. And the Boyne River has the same derivation, Awin Bófina, the river of the white cow. And essentially one was seen as a reflection of the other, although in which order I'm not sure. The idea is a sort of a cosmic vision where, you know, what is in earth is also on the on on the ground. Sorry, what is in the heavens is also on the earth. As above, so below. Oh, it's fascinating yeah. stuff, isn't it? Good grief. Oh, beautiful. I want to come over and make a film, Anthony. <laughs> but in adi- well, in addition to that <laughs> is the fact that Newgrange is quite an important wintering ground for the whooper swan, which comes ah, yes. yeah, from Iceland to Ireland in great numbers yeah. in the wintertime. Something like twenty or 25,000 birds uh, land in County Donegal uh, at the beginning of October and yeah. disperse to their wintering grounds. And Newgrange has all, always been, as long as the records go back, has always been an important wintering ground. So perhaps mm. they saw these birds that magically arrived in the winter season and departed again as being uh, otherworld or what you might call psychopomps, otherworld guides, perhaps bringing the souls of the departed into, you know, another world in the undying region of the sky where Cygnus was seen never to set, you know. Mm. I'm, my eyes have been opened uh, quite considerably by all this, Anthony, because I hadn't appreciated <laughs> uh, quite how much uh, these Neolithic monuments are actually mentioned in the myth. And that's something really, yeah. really special. I'll tell you for mm-hmm. why, because when we were making um, our film 10 years ago, uh, Rupert and I invented a, a, an analogy to explain how difficult a job archaeologists have, <laughs> uh, you know, teasing any meaning at all. Any of us have uh, teasing meaning out of what remains in the ground. I don't know if you remember, there was 
uh, back in the 70s, there was a craze for uh, lateral thinking uh, puzzles and, and, and questions. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, one of them was, um, you know, a man finds a carrot and two lumps of coal uh, in a field. What does that tell him? And uh, the answer, you know, obviously was that uh, there was a, a snowman and it melted. But being an archaeologist is more like being in a field and finding it, being in a field and finding a carrot, but somebody'd stolen the two lumps of coal. <laughs> so you try and work or, or out. Indeed the other, or, work, or indeed the other way around, out. the yeah. sheep had eaten the carrot, and uh, and there was only one lump of coal left. <laughs> yeah, but I, it just it just seems to me with your uh, being embedded, uh, you, you've you've got the archaeology and you understand, and you've got the astronomy and you've got the the myth that you seem to, you know, bringing some form of triangulation to it that brings a, a deeper understanding. You know, that's not available to many other monuments um throughout the uk and the rest of europe as far as i can make out it's a really fascinating sort of leverage point oh rupert can, mm. Anthony, can i think can i there's a quote um um that, that i i know of and these are uh anthony's words and i think they're really great okay. it's only when stars stones and stories combine that we're able to see a larger picture emerge. I was just about to say that to you. <laughs> I was I'm just sorry. about to say that. Uh, you dear. read my mind. Uh, yeah. dear. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. Do you want to say it anyway? Because it's better in your own words. Well, I was going to say that. What, what we're lucky about, I suppose, with Newgrange in particular, is that there's such an importance attached to it in myth that it features in a lot of our mythology. So there's plentiful mythology about the Boyne Valley and in mm. particular Newgrange, which is the centerpiece. Um, so we have lots of material to study. The other thing is that people mightn't realise the, the sheer volume of uh, yeah. mythological and folklore material that there is in Ireland, um, despite what we lost and despite the fact that, you know, the, the, the folk tradition died out largely in the 20th century, we have a huge corpus of mythology. Yes. One of the strangest aspects is the fact that a lot of our epic mythology was saved by Christian monks in the monasteries. So, you yes. know, Christian monks yeah. were recording pagan, what was essentially pa pagan mythology. Um, it is enough material for a dedicated student to spend an entire lifetime on and to only scratch the surface and i mean that quite genuinely and and several people have yeah. tried the great scholars yeah. who translated yeah. a lot of this material great people like john o'donovan of the uh, ordnance survey professor ras McAllister, who did a lot of the translations uh gwyn who did the denshanicus people like pw joyce uh who devoted you know their, their lifetime to the study, to the recording, to the translation of all this stuff, and who each made a huge contribution individually, uh, but who each at the same time were only, as I say, scratching the surface, uh, a drop in the ocean, as it were, of a much, much bigger body of myth, you know. I do so hope that uh, our listeners are finding this as uh, mind-expanding yeah. as, yeah. uh, as we are, and, uh, well, just getting a new perspective. Um, on something maybe some of us have been taken taken for granted. Newgrange and the Bruno Boyne is not um, just another set of uh, monuments. It has 
very special mm. aspects to it. And um, we probably wouldn't be looking uh, uh, along these lines if we're, we weren't uh, speaking to you, and uh, if it wasn't for, for you and the work that you've done over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, so yeah. I think it's one of the one of the really fascinating things about this is is also seeing another aspect of how the threads carry on. Yeah, you know the threads still carry on weaving themselves yeah. into uh, culture for you know whatever age we happen to be. Mm. Uh, I don't mean whatever age we are personally. I mean <laughs> in in whichever age we're living. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that you know somehow these these stories yeah. are still carried on through, and uh, it's it, it it does it gives a very very different perspective on on so many of these things. Um, We're coming up to the hour mark now, and I think we um, if we could think in terms of uh, of wrapping up, I think there's unless there's something else uh, you wanted to add, uh, Anthony or uh, Rupert, to that. I want to ask a question. This is from a absolutely go for it. This is from a a much more mundane point of view, actually, because I know that. Well, as I said before, I've been a passionate amateur astronomer all my life, and I know that at least. A couple of our regular listeners are very passionate about their astronomy as well. So I have to ask you, uh, do you have your own gear? Do you have a nice telescope that, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to uh, uh, to anybody who's who's, who's not a, a, a kind of gear nut, yeah. really, but we do <laughs> like to talk about what we've got. And well, it's really funny what, that you should what's ask. What's your weapon of choice? I do have a very nice telescope <laughs> and I do have several uh, pairs of giant binoculars. But uh, in recent years, I've been inclined to use them quite a lot less because uh, the, the, te- the telescope is a modern invention. And what the telescope actually wants us to do is to zoom into a very small area of the sky or an object of interest. Mm. And what it actually does is takes away that broad focus that the Neolithic mind would have had on the wider sky and the movements Mm. around it. Um, But uh, I own a Celestron Nexstar 11 GPS is my telescope. Right, you did ask, Um, Rupert. I did, and that's what I wanted to know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I have a pair of uh, 25 by 100 binoculars and 20 by 80 binoculars. Uh And to be honest with you, I get just as much pleasure out of viewing the 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 uh, the not that so much the deep sky but the star clusters and the milky way yes. and you know um if some of the galaxies with the binoculars as i do with the telescope yes I actually to be honest i find the telescope is i don't have an observatory or a fixed position for it mm-hmm. i'd love to have it permanently mounted setting it up is actually quite a chore you know <laughs> um but then, of course, the camera the camera equipment has become equally important because most mm, of what yeah. I've been doing um, in terms of the imagery for my books has been uh, has been all self created all that myself. So the Nikon the, yeah, the Nikon yeah. camera gear and lenses are are nearly more important now for my enjoyment of astronomy yes. as the telescope. You know, yes, I, I think we yeah. we speak with a single voice, really, if I'm honest, um, yeah. because. I'd like you, I, I'll go nerdy. I, I did have an, uh, a, 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 yes, gear, a Mead LX200. Um, and I just, it was funny that I had spent with my four inch refractor, I had spent, I can't tell you how many nights just lacing the sky looking for things that I never found. 
And in the first night that I had a computerized telescope, I saw more deep sky objects uh, within the first couple of hours than I'd actually seen in my entire life. But now I actually, I do have a telescope. It lives in England. Uh, I, uh, I don't have one here. I have binoculars here, but most of the time I just go out in the dark yeah. and just use yeah. my eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm with you on that. Um, and camera gear, obviously. Uh, long yeah. exposure photography is wonderful. But I, I had to ask because we just we like to know, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> well, myself and um, Ken Williams, who was, um, as I say, was was right by my side on the night we discovered the henge. We're, we're, we're both we're both Nikon gear freaks, so we we we, yeah. we spend a lot of time talking about Nikon gear yeah. and lenses and flashes and you know settings and <laughs> ISO and dynamic range and all that sort of stuff you know but it is nice to indulge because as I think yes. um, I yes. hope I'm not being yes. sexist but I know that boys and toys you know we, we we just have a particular thing about our gear and we like talking <laughs> about our gear you know and comparing our gear you know <laughs> yeah. maybe we should do a whole other program. <laughs> We should, we should, and then, and then we could have a, a whole discussion about the merits of uh, of Nick, okay. Nikon and Canon. I'm oh, a Canon right. man. We, um, yeah, we could call it drones and <laughs> don't, we don't forget drones the, and the, stones. The, the, the new henge oh, was could. christened by one of the tabloid papers as Drone Henge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's priceless. <laughs> yeah. It will probably get a very functional label, like site P one or something like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, Ar- that? archaeologists have got a lot to answer for, haven't they, with names? They certainly do. <laughs> I, I, one last um, question to uh, round up, uh, Anthony. What uh, do you see now as being the most fruitful avenues to pursue in order to bring all these threads threads closer together? What are the, what are the things that you wish you could know that would uh, lead to a clearer understanding of the late Neolithic? What's missing for you? That's a very good question. One of the things that's missing, Michael, is where all of the people who built these monuments lived. We have thus far Ah. no evidence of a large um, habitation site in the vicinity of the valley. Now, some of the features that showed up in that field of wheat crop are very interesting. They may or may not, again, wildly speculating here, and I'm not an archaeologist, but they may or may not be hearths. Um, and they may or may not be evidence of, you know, community activity. Uh, Actually, the biggest single question I have surrounding this now is what was the local indigenous settled population in terms of numbers, and where did people come from to help build these monuments? Because it definitely wasn't a local community who built all this stuff, because there's simply wouldn't have been the numbers. The sheer numbers involved must have been much more uh, extensive. With the henges right along the river, we can certainly imagine the arrival of large populations from elsewhere in Ireland and maybe even from across the water for seasonal festivities that took place around, for instance, um, you know, what we would call Bialtana, the beginning of summer, for Lunasa, what we would consider to be the harvest festival for the winter solstice itself. And was the Boyne River basically um, the the motorway of its day? And how many people from from how far away came to help in this grandiose 
construction project that lasted only for a few centuries. The sheer numbers yeah. of people involved in the construction of one of these, this henge, for instance, some of the post holes in this henge are several metres wide. It's oh an enormous goodness. structure. It didn't have access to, to metallurgy, didn't use any metal tools. Mm. There was a huge amount of manual labour involved. Yeah. You know, what, what were the things that inspired them? Were they were they under slavery? Were they entirely, completely, and uh, and freely devoted with a great zeal to this task? Of, of course, there's an underlying spirituality and cosmology there that you know that they were were obviously inspired by. Um, and there are just so many questions around those things. And this new discovery adds to this not just the complexity of the the, the monument complex but of course the scale and size and size of it how many people yeah. from how far away were involved in it that's a fascinating one i yeah. I, 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 I didn't see that one coming but in in hindsight mm-hmm. it looks quite obvious because you don't have as complete a picture as we do say at, uh, at stonehenge where no but we we have to uh, we, we have to look at the correlations yeah. there because yeah. what we we do know from uh, from the isotope analysis, and only very recently that we we know quite how far livestock was being taken for feasting or what have you. We know uh, from things like the Land- Langdale axes how far people traded, mm. and uh, uh, you know I, yeah. I, uh, I, we have a joke, Michael and I. Uh, uh, I mean. I'm very irreverent when it comes to uh, a lot of uh, a lot of our historical suppositions, and one of my things is that the the madness at Karnak in Brittany, where you just get these armies of stones, I think it's a showroom, and you could go there from wherever you could travel to the showroom and say, "Yeah, I'll have that one, please." And the guys there would say, "Okay, well, we can deliver it, uh, you know, three months next Tuesday," um, because the, there there were guys who were specialist builders and specialist movers, you know that. We all know how heavy a piano is, and yet when you used to have removal men come and put a piano in your house, they'd fling it around and take it up the stairs like it was nothing. If you know how to do it, you know how to do it. And uh, and I think that culturally, you know, there must have been... The, the very fact that we built monuments like this at all means that we had day-to-day sustenance and all the rest of it completely sorted, yeah. and, and the time could be allocated for these these things that were not strictly necessary, let's put it that way, which means there must have been people whose lives were dedicated to that work. So I think they would have travelled massive distances yeah, yeah, to, that's what I'm inclined to join think. in. Yeah. So good point. Um, um, finding the evidence for that movement and finding the evidence of uh, habitation and... Uh, and uh, and what there were relatively few burials, actual burials. Is that correct? In terms of, and we've got loads of cremations and stuff at Stonehenge. You know, they they they've been able to go through the mill of analysis, but uh, not so much um, uh, at uh, Brundabyne. Yeah. So one of, well, one of the difficulties with Newgrange is that it was opened in 1699 AD. Uh, you know, having undergone the Cairn collapse, which happened yeah. sometime in prehistory. And a lot of people are coming and going out of Newgrange. So we don't know what material disappeared. There were something like 1,200 bone fragments recovered. But the only thing that we could tell from that was that there were definitely at least five individuals interred in there. Look, it could have been a lot more. One of the difficulties is that there was some sort of processing of the corpse in the Neolithic, which involved the stripping of flesh and the uh, dismemberment of the limbs 
and you know the reduction of the the corpse to basically uh, mostly cremated fragments of bone and sometimes uncremated. So you have a difficulty piecing together what happened in terms of the the process of death and how people how people's corpses were dealt with after they died. You know. Yeah, brilliant. So, as usual, d- despite um, uh, the illuminations um, that have been brought, we uh, are still, at the end of the day, asked, uh, left with uh, questions, and that's... Uh, <laughs> May that never end. That's part and parcel <laughs> of the fun of this. Anthony, thank you so much. This has been uh, a deep pleasure uh, You're talking welcome. to you. It's been a pleasure and, for me too. Uh, yeah. it, it really has, yeah. and and we will get across to uh, to come and uh, 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 buy you a pint and uh, yes, uh, and and have a look at stones. Oh, I look forward <laughs> to that. That will be great fun. By the way, speaking of um, being in the dark, I always enjoyed that uh, there were outtakes on your DVD. Uh, I don't know where you were, but you were trying to light this. It wasn't a candle, I think. It was something bigger than a candle. Oh, no. Uh, and, and you were trying it to... It was. <laughs> that was great it was fun. Stony Littleton. Stony Littleton, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was great fun. That was great fun, yeah. No, set, setting light to yourself. Oh, no, that... Uh, oh. <laughs> Well, thereby hangs a tale. Yeah, we did have fun. If you're going to go poking about in the dark, bring torch. (laughs) Well, here's to poking about in the dark. Uh, Thank you, Anthony. Thanks uh, to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And um, hopefully we'll uh, get to um, talk to Anthony again in the near future. I think the feeling is much more forward to Thank you all. Thank you so much. See you all soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye.